to the book of Matthew. Our text this morning can be found on page uh, 832. Page 832, we're in Matthew 26, verses 30 to 46. That last line of that hymn is really what we're about to read. Not my deserving, but his love unswerving. Uh, We've seen some predictions already of betrayal and denial. Uh, We're only going to get more of that uh, this morning. Uh, We're going to see some of that fulfilled, only to see uh, more of it fulfilled uh, in the weeks to come. I said before, Matthew has really slammed on the brakes as he is driving through uh, this narrative of the life of Jesus. And we have been in this final week now for a couple months. Uh, We are nearing the end of the book of Matthew. Uh, Lord willing, uh, around Thanksgiving, we will draw this sermon series that has gone on for 78 sermons uh, to a close. Uh, But we are in a meaty part as we have stopped the teaching section that has really ended. And now we're watching slowly uh, these final excruciating hours uh, in the final day of Jesus. One thing Matthew shows us along the way is that Jesus is in charge. He is in charge of the order of events. He is in charge of uh, even the bad things that will happen to him. And we see uh, in our text today the failings of all those around him. And yet, though everyone else fails, even in the most trying moments of his ministry up to this point, Jesus uh, does not fail. Would you follow along with me uh, as we read chapter 25? Verses 30 to 46. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And for the second time he went away and prayed, My father... If this cannot pass until I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. 
So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers, the flower fades. Word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we pray this morning that you would protect us from the arrogance of thinking those disciples are worse than us. I pray, O oh God, you would give us eyes to see in this text like a mirror what we have just sung, that indeed it is us and our hearts that have betrayed you. We are the ones as well who have failed you. And I pray, Lord, as we go a little bit deep into the heart of this text, and that it reveals about our own failings, that through that, you would not leave us there, but you would show us Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, in all of his grace. And while we might begin this morning in pity, we will end in praise for who your son is and what he has done for us upon the cross. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen. You've heard this phrase before. It's not personal. It's just business, right? Uh, Maybe uh, you've uh, started a business and tried to get some friends to invest, and they decide not to, and they say, it's not personal. It's it's just business, right? Your kids try to raise some money for school, and they don't get people to give them enough money, and they say, well, it's not personal. It's just business, right? Maybe the owner of your favorite sports team trades away your favorite childhood player and tells you it's just to save money, right? It's not personal, it's just business. Maybe you've had friends from church who have left to go to another church and they've said to you, it's not personal, it's just, hopefully not business, it's just theology or it's it's just the music. And, And all of these times you're thinking to yourself, no, it is personal, It is personal when you don't invest in my business. It is personal when you trade my favorite player. It is personal when you leave and I thought we were together because you don't like the music. It it is personal in all of these ways, right? I wonder if there's something else that we don't think is personal. And that's what we see in this text. That's the idea of sin. We sort of have a concept of sin down. We know we do stuff we shouldn't do. We know we break laws that God gives us that we should keep. We know we don't do the stuff that we're supposed to do, but sometimes it just feels like, yeah, it was kind of, I was speeding today, I was going a little too fast. Uh, I didn't do what I was supposed to do, so I'll do better tomorrow, I'll try harder tomorrow, and I'll ask for forgiveness, and, and, I'll be, and it becomes just sort of a list of rules we succeed or fail at keeping. But I wonder if Jesus would look at our statement and say, if we're thinking to ourselves, well, it's sin, it's not personal, right? It's just legal. Well, this text should change our mind. And it should show us that even something like sin, especially something like sin, is in fact very personal. Because in this account, it's, it's not simply some guys breaking some rules. It's not some guys falling asleep when they should have stayed awake. No, it's the intimate friends of Jesus that personally fail him at the worst possible time. 
And in the failure of the disciples, I don't want to be hard on you this morning, but I'm going to be. I want you to see yourself. I want you to see your own sin. I particularly hope you see this morning that your sin is personal. Because it's against a person. It's against Christ, our Lord. But as we mount up our own failures, we're not going to stay there. Because we're also going to see in our text is the one against whom we have sinned personally and truly and really. The one whom we have failed, he never fails us. And that though this account is full of failure, there's one who stands out like a shiny beacon because he doesn't fail us. If you don't get anything else this morning, get this one sentence. Though we all fail Jesus, he never fails us. That's it. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Though we all fail Jesus, he never fails us. One of the themes of this portion of this chapter that Matthew draws us into is a theme of pressure. Everyone who we see in this section is experiencing pressure. Now, Matthew does this in a unique way because he takes us to a place called Gethsemane. He takes us out of Jerusalem where we've been the We saw last week the Last Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper. They've closed that Passover liturgy singing a hymn, probably one of the Halal Psalms, right? Psalm 113 to 118, somewhere in there, that's verse 30. They sing a psalm, the hymn, and then they leave. They go down in the valley, the Kidron Valley, and they go back up, back up the, the, the Mount of Olives, and they stop in a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane in Aramaic means oil press. So we have a place where lots of olives are grown and they are pressed, cranked down and pressed upon such that the oil is squeezed out of them. And in this earthly picture, we see multiple men going into a spiritual press and pressure is exerted upon all of them. And what comes out of some or most is failure. What comes out of one The only one is that he never fails us. In this pressure cooker, in this oil press, I want you to see our two headings this morning. We fail Jesus. He never fails us. Point one, we fail Jesus. We're going to walk through all of our verses with the first look at how we fail Jesus. And particularly, Matthew shows us two ways. The disciples fail him. And therefore, that we can understand how we have sinned personally against Christ. Number one, how do we fail Jesus? By falling away. Verses 30 to 35. Here's, this is Jesus' term, his terminology, when he says in verse 31, you will all fall away. So verses 30 to 35, the first way we fail Jesus is by falling away. He is predicted, as he has many times, about what is to come. His prediction here is that the disciples will all fall away this very night. It's already late at night. We're going to see this in a moment when they're falling asleep. right? It's already after dinner. This very night, all of them, it's hard to imagine, but all of them will fall away. Jesus isn't inventing this out of nowhere. He is fulfilling prophecy. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That almost reads like a proverb, doesn't it? That the lead, you, you strike down the leader, and everyone else is going to kind of dissipate. That's, 
That phrase, though, doesn't occur in Proverbs. It occurs in Zechariah as prophecy. But the good shepherd being struck and the sheep scared, disoriented, disorganized, will scatter. And he describes their action particularly as falling away. They will fail to stand with Jesus. This is a prophecy. We'll see it fulfilled next week. All the disciples will leave him and they will flee at the time of when the pressure dial is turned up a little bit. They will show cowardice when Jesus asks of them courage. They will show disloyalty when their Lord asks of them loyalty. When the trial comes, the pressure comes from a couple of different places. The pressure here is a pressure of a trial. And whether they're afraid they're going to endure the same fate as Jesus, whether they're afraid they're going to be mocked and made fun of like Jesus, whether they're afraid they're going to be arrested like Jesus, or they just can't, they cannot comprehend a Messiah being arrested and not fighting back, whatever it is, this pressure is too much for them. Except for one guy who thinks he's got it down, right? Peter looks at this pressure coming and he says, I'm good, right? I got all this covered. Of course, it's Peter that says this. Who else would it be uh, amongst the 12? It's Peter who says, I and I alone will remain with Jesus. Now, it's comical sort of because it's Peter. It's also tragic how arrogant his answer is. (laughs) I want you to see just how erroneous the errors of Peter's arrogance in verse 33. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What's wrong with this? Multiple things. Number one is his condescension towards the other disciples. I mean, if anybody ever threw somebody else under the bus, it's Peter right here, right? They're all not going to do it, Jesus. I got you. The arrogance of thinking, Everyone else is weak, but I am strong. I will endure when everybody else will fail. His second error goes from condescension to confidence. Where is his confidence? It's in himself. He places his confidence in himself, not in Christ, not in God, not in the Spirit. And then his third error here is that he contradicts Jesus. This is not new territory for Peter, is it? He's already got in trouble for this. The same guy that thinks he's going to stand is the guy that Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And that guy thinks, I'm good, right? He is condescending. He is confident in the wrong places. And he contradicts Jesus' own words. Our first response to when Jesus tells us something should not be, no, you're wrong. But that's Peter, isn't it? In both of these occasions, we'll see the other one in a moment, the disciples generally fail Jesus, and then Peter sort of in particular fails Jesus. The key guy, just so we don't miss this, it's not like it's the weakest of the disciples that are failing Jesus. It's the key guy that's failing Jesus. So we don't look at that group of 12 and say, well, I would, if I was in it, I wouldn't be the lower six. I would be in the top tier. I'd be fine, like, like Peter? They all fall away, every one of them. Peter's falling away is just particularly bad in his denial of Jesus. 
Now, in the midst of all of this bad stuff, in the midst of all of this falling away, we, we, we must not miss this, this response of grace from Jesus in verse 32. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You're all going to leave me, but don't worry, I'm going to come get you. You're going to flee from me at the first sign of something bad happening. I'm going to go all the way to the grave, and then I'll come get you. You think if you were Jesus, you might say, you know, forget you guys. I'm going to go get a new 12. But no, he's going to take those same guys. He says, I'm going to win. You all will fail. I will rise. And then we will go on to victory. Because it is Jesus alone who never fails us. You need to see, even as he is predicting what's happening He is not here the victim. He's the volunteer. He knows what he's going to. He knows what he's signed up for. He knows the mission for which his father has sent him. And he's not victimized here. He is not at the hands of those who are plotting against him. And he has no control in it. No, he readily and willingly puts himself in the hands and the friendship of those who fail him. It's all part of his plan. If the first way that we fail Jesus is by falling away, the second one is sort of simpler. It's by falling asleep. The second way we fail Jesus is by falling asleep, verses 36 to 46. That's usually what stands out the most in our memory of these verses, is these guys keep falling asleep. So he gets up to uh, the garden itself, up to Gethsemane, and there he tells them to watch and pray with him while he goes a little bit ways off, and he's going to pray. He wants them to wait for him nearby and watch and pray with him. But they fall asleep three times. Right? That's sort of the back and forth. They, they keep falling asleep. Matthew highlights their sleepiness, their inability to stay awake. And who makes it worse? The only disciple mentioned here is Peter. Because you see, all of them are on one side, and Jesus tells them all away, the and then he takes sort of what's been called the inner three, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, Peter, James, and John, and they come closer with Jesus. So they're, they're right there while he, nearby while he's praying. And then it seems like the way Matthew records it, they're the ones who are primarily the object of his rebuke because they've fallen asleep when he comes back. Peter just makes everything worse. It, Peter has, within almost one breath, said, I'm willing to die with you, but not stay awake with you. What's wrong here? What's, what's really the problem? I mean, is Jesus this harsh uh, about people who fall asleep when they're I mean, they've just had their big meal that they've all been preparing for, look forward to. I mean, how many of you take that post-Thanksgiving turkey meal nap, right? You try to stay awake to watch the cowboys on the couch, but your eyes are falling asleep, right? Is this really a problem of sleep? Is this great sin that they're sleeping. It's part of it. But really, what I want you to see, particularly in his, his rebuke to them in verse 40, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our, our pressure is now in the form of temptation. And he has just told them the most devastating prediction you could hear from the guy in charge of you, Right? 
He says, this night, it's already late at night, so it's coming soon. Tonight you're going to betray me. And they think to themselves, no, we're not. Let's go take a nap. Right? Jesus is saying, if you really heard me, if you really heeded my voice, tonight you'll betray me. If you believed that, if you had humbled yourself, you would be wide awake. And you would be praying with all of your might. But you see, them, like Peter, they rely on themselves. And when we rely on ourselves for our own strength, you know what we don't do? Pray. If we don't need God, why would we pray? Prayer is the very expression of our humility and our neediness to God. See, it's not just that they have full bellies and and tired eyes and they fall asleep. That's part of it. But it's also because they don't see the need at all. It's like they've been put on the wall to watch with Jesus, but they don't even think there's a bad guy coming. Because they don't believe him, because they think they're going to be fine. Good intentions, their spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How often are our good intentions foiled by our human weaknesses? This is why they should prepare for trial by watching and praying. And it's why we, as disciples of Jesus, should be marked by watching and praying and dependence upon him to face the trials that are coming towards us. Jesus was facing the greatest pressure imaginable in these moments. We'll see it in a second. And how did he prepare for it? Prayer. And they were facing the biggest pressure of their lives. And what did they fail to do? Pray for it. Because I don't think they thought they needed any help. Again, you're Jesus, and your guys keep falling asleep on you. You might be forgiven for saying, let me just go get some guys that can stay awake, right? Look at how he responds in grace in verse 45. He says, sleep and take your rest later on. It's a big night coming for you. It's no time to sleep. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He wakes them up. Guys, you have failed me utterly in this moment. But you're still my guys. Let's go. Rise and let us be going. I think in that is such encouragement for failing people like you and me. (laughs) That our Lord in his patience and his graciousness and his kindness doesn't leave us. But rise, he calls us, and let's go. There is a version of Christianity that emphasizes our strength as Christians. That prioritizes the decisions that we make. That preaches and hears sermons about how we need to be stronger. And how we need to be better. And how we need to try harder. And we just need to do and achieve and succeed. And we're a bunch of failures because we're not. So just go try harder. And that is oddly attractive to so many of us. Just give me a set of rules. Just give me some instructions. Give me, a, give me a pep talk and I'm ready to go attack this week, right? It's like we sang, right? It's, it's about popping up and praising Jesus first thing in the morning. Except in reality, we have those sleepless nights. If that is you, this passage must humble you. It is the prideful disciples who fall away. The warning here is to be humbled 
in the face of the trials and temptation that come in this life. Paul writes so succinctly in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. All these guys thought they stood. All these guys, we don't need Jesus. We don't need prayer. We got this. And it's not just the certain version of Christianity that emphasizes our own strength that need to be humbled. It's all of us that need to be humbled. We must walk away from these chapters humbled at the failing of these men. And if we don't take heed, then we too will fall. And the, the handhold, the practical application of what humility looks like, the expression of humility in the life of disciples who know they need Jesus is prayer. Is the neediness of prayer. Prayer in the eyes of a world that says trust yourself and your own strength and resources is a waste of time. Prayer in the eyes of God, it's all we got. (laughs) With our voice, and only our voice, we cry out to God as humble and humbled disciples pray. We've gone through the whole text from beginning to end. We fail Jesus. All fall away. But Jesus is still there. And what will he do? I want you to see, secondly, that he never fails us. He never fails us. We're going to zero in on the time in the garden for this point. We talk of Jesus being tempted in his ministry, in his life. When you think of the temptation of Jesus, I hope you think of the garden. I'm sorry, the desert. Not the garden. This is the garden. The desert. Matthew 4, where he's out in the desert, tempted and tried by the devil. But here we see really coming to a head, the greatest temptation in his ministry. I want you to see in these verses just how bad it was. Just how deep it was. First, I want you to see the depth of his sorrow. How sorrowful, how troubled was Jesus. Matthew tells us in verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Matthew told us the verse before, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He is marked in these moments by sorrow. This is the the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 when we read, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Here is the crank on the pressure wheel, just going up one more notch. Right? The, the pressure, the sorrow, the pain, the suffering on the head of Jesus. J.C. Ryle says it so succinctly, the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world. The weight of the sin of the world. You know how hard it is to bear the weight of your own sin? That's pretty hard, isn't it? We can't do that. Here's Jesus bearing the weight of the sin of the world. And at least in all of this sorrow, he has one solace there to to comfort him is that his friends are there with him, right? 
I mean, kids, think about the hardest thing you have to do uh, when you have to go to the doctor and get a shot. Sorry to bring that up. I know kids hate that. Your parents hate it too. And what do you do when you're about to get that shot? Well, you hold mom's hand real tight. I wish my mom was still there when I had to go get a shot, right? Because it, le- it doesn't take the pain away. The pain still hurts just as much, but at least someone's there with you, right? At least there's that comfort and that solace in suffering. Not for Jesus. They all fell asleep. No one there to bear a speck of the sorrow with him. From the depth of his sorrow, we see next the depth of his supplication. The depth of his prayer. How how deeply he was moved to prayer. Matthew tells us in verse 39, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed. Only time we see Jesus praying like this. He fell on his face and he prayed. He is desperate. Three times he goes and talks to his disciples and he comes back and he prays over and over and over again. This is how the book of Hebrews describes this prayer. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The pressure is cranked down. Nobody can bear it. And yet Jesus clinging to his father in prayer. And he asks This supplication, this prayer, he asks, is there any other way? Somebody wrote, he explores the limits of the will of God. There's got to be some other way in God's will to achieve this very purpose. Now, this isn't a sinful question. It's not an unfaithful question. It's a human suffering question, right? There's got to be another way. Because God's way is almost unbearable. He speaks of a cup. The Old Testament points to the cup symbolically that holds the wrath of God. It's described as foaming with the wrath of God. And the will of God is that Jesus, as the substitute, as the sin bearer, would drink the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. Now, there is another way. You remember Satan had another way in Matthew 4. He says, you want the kingdom? You want it all? I'll give it all to you. And you don't even have to go to the cross. You just have to bow down to me real quick. And then you're good. You can get out of all of this. You see, behind Jesus as he approaches his death and he approaches his suffering is this sort of get out of jail free card that Satan is always sort of holding up for him. Just skip it. Just pass over it. What kind of father would have their son go through? of the seed of the woman. There's no other way. 
to redeem the children of God except by the sin-bearing substitute. And so, the final step we see is the, the depth of his submission. His sorrow, his supplication, his submission. As you will, he says in verse 39, verse 42, your will be done. Think back to the first garden temptation. Think back to the Garden of Eden. The first time people were in a garden being tried and tempted under the crank of the pressure of temptation. And God's will was made known to Adam and Eve. And God's will for them was just obey him. That's it. His will for Adam and Eve in the garden was obey and live. The temptation comes and they say, in essence, to God, not as you will, but as we will. Not your will, our will be done. That's the heritage, y'all. That's our heritage as sinners. We are marked as people that say in the face of our Father's good will, not your will be done, but my will be done. And so when we come to another garden, when we come to another crank on the press of temptation, and we see here revealed the will of God, and it's different than the first garden because the will here for Jesus is obey and die. Will Jesus answer the will of God like every other single person on the face of the earth answers it? Not your will, but my will. Jesus answers, not as I will, but as you will. The only one who could face that temptation and that question and submit to the good will of his father. Again, Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Adam and Eve in the garden, they failed. Every disciple, they failed. Even the mighty Peter, he fails. Jesus did not fail us. Not then and not now. Let me ask you this question. We'll be done. What kind of pressure are you feeling right now? What kind of trials, what kind of temptations are you going through? Are you you called to witness for Jesus, but you're scared? Are you called to obey him in a hard situation, but you're doubting if he's really good? Are you called to stand for Jesus, but you're wavering as you, you see the soldiers coming, like we'll see next week? Are you facing temptations and you have good intentions, but you have no strength? I'm going to go back to the good news of this passage. That after Jesus rises, he goes before us to Galilee. That he goes before every single one of us. He goes before us into the grave 
He goes before us into the resurrected life. He goes before us into glory. And he says to us, like he says to him, while they're sleeping, rise and let's go together. You see, for Jesus, sin is personal. It is so personal. But so is salvation. Personal for him. For every one of us that's failed him, he has redeemed us by his blood shed upon the cross. In your weakness, in your failing, trust Christ today because he will never fail us. And into the grave and into life, he goes before us and he tells us to rise and to go with him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we are a weak and sinful people. You have shown us as in a mirror the faults and the failings of our own hearts. I pray, O Lord, that your word had struck us. I pray that it has left each one of us defenseless. I pray that it has revealed some dark places about us. But let us not leave this place thinking about that. Let us leave this place looking upon Christ, the one who succeeded where we all failed, the one who submitted himself to your will, the one who rises again and calls us by faith to follow and to join him. Lord, send us your spirit this day to trust in Christ, to leave the the guilt and the shame of our failings behind, to rest in the finished work of our Savior, and to go forth enabled, encouraged, strengthened by your Spirit to walk in faith, to follow you into the land of the living. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 541. One thing we see in the testimony of the church is that weak and failing and sleeping disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, are radically changed to men and women of bold and courageous faith. His final hymn dwells on that. As our king goes before us, we pray his spirit would so fill us, we would follow him in the victorious battle unto the ends of the earth. Uh, Hymn 541, the Son of God goes forth.